Join me in 1 Peter chapter 2. Our theme in considering this letter has been that we live as followers of Jesus Christ, oftentimes facing hostility for our beliefs and our convictions and because of our Savior. However, in the face of that hostility, be it opposition, be it scorn, be it persecution, we are steadied by grace. We've seen in the last few paragraphs that as followers of Jesus Christ, our lives should be characterized by good works. Yes, our words should clearly witness to the work of Christ, but our works should loudly echo those words. Our text today shows us that even our response to being treated unjustly must be one of endurance and faith in order to represent well our Savior. And to make the point, Peter will point us to the story of Jesus and the events of his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. Certainly a timely study for us this morning. Consider our text, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. God's word to us, by his spirit, through the apostle. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin, You are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Father, teach us by this supreme example of Christ to suffer injustice with endurance. Thank you for our Savior who did not turn away from drinking the cup of your wrath but who endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy of seeing us spotless before the presence of his glory. So change us as we come to your word this morning so that Christ would be glorified in us. Amen. Our big idea is taken from Peter's opening admonition. Servants, be subject to your master's 
with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. We must endure unjust suffering. We must endure unjust suffering. Now, our text isn't about enduring suffering in general. This isn't about trusting God in the trials of life, sickness, injury, financial pressures, losing a job, and the like. Those are certainly sufferings, but they are not the sufferings Peter is talking about in this paragraph. He is talking about the Christians who are doing good and suffer unjustly in return for that good. It's an injustice that is being suffered or endured. So our big idea, we must endure unjust suffering. Now, that's the emphasis of this paragraph. But as we think of some forms of suffering, we would come to understand that there would also be biblical responses that may be necessary. Consider, for example, the unjust suffering of an abused spouse. We wouldn't continually preach the message to endure unjust suffering to great personal harm or injury or such. Eventually, we would reckon with the whole counsel of God that would call us, yes, to suffer injustice at times, but at other times to to act on behalf of those suffering unjustly. So understand, again, we're looking at at a principle this morning that is generally true and more often than not needs to be heeded. But I do want to recognize that in some applications, we would realize that the suffering and the injustice have both reached a place where justice and intervention must be administrated. But I want to put that exception out of our minds this morning, lest we think every injustice we suffer rises to the occasion for me to throw off restraint and defend myself. Because nothing about Christ and Calvary portrays that spirit. Our big idea begins with the command for a specific context. Servants, submit to masters. Peter's addressing the Christians who are household servants. We could call them slaves as long as we recognize There's a slight distinction from the word that is used back in verse 16. When Peter writes, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The word is slaves. So we're slaves of God, but then Peter turns around and says in verse 18, servants, and the word in Greek is domestikos from which we get the word domestic. It's not quite the same as the conquered slave. It's it's more of the household slave or servant. The majority of Rome's population were slaves, either the slaves of the word in verse 16 or the domestic household servants. Now, the whole issue of slavery in the scripture would, would warrant another whole conversation But it is significant that Peter addresses this population. It's endorsing 
their value. It's showing that God's truth transcends all the socioeconomic boundaries and Peter feels free to address a crowd that most people would consider to be property of a master that don't need to be addressed because they're just stuff. Peter says, no, you're people. And as people who are believers in God hear this instruction... Now imagine yourself either born into the slavery or being a conquered nation of Rome and have been brought into this slavery or maybe have, through great poverty and debt, had to sell yourself into slavery and having a master who is considered not gentle but unjust, unfair, and your back has some of the the scars from the rod or the whip, and your family is often mistreated, and you receive word that a letter has come to the churches in your neck of the woods, and that letter perhaps is circulated and read, and you hear that Peter had written to the church claiming inspiration, saying to be subject to your unjust, cruel, masters. That would be a hard command to hear. But I want us to think through that a little bit so that we don't escape the command to submit ourselves to unjust and at times imperfect and at times harsh authorities. There are times when even in an ugly marriage, a wife needs to be told to submit. Unless you think I'm wandering in my applications, come back next week when that will be the the text for our study. There are times when employees need to be told, yes, listen, I'm not arguing with you. I understand your boss is a wretch and so much of what he does is unjust. It's not fair. I I hear you say you're not being treated well. But submit to that authority. There are times as citizens, we've already studied that in the weeks past, that we find ourselves submitting to authority that we would never want to even associate with as friends and family because they're just wicked people. And there are children in this room who God is telling to submit to parents who just quite, or who aren't quite up to the standard of perfection. And so let's establish clearly that these commands that come to us to submit to imperfect authorities are challenging. And yet they're they're weighty. They come to us with explanation and with illustration. And today, to think of servants being told to submit to unjust masters because it's God's will and because Christ did the exact same thing adds great weight to the command for that context of servants. It's not an exact application to our setting today as employees and employers because unlike the domestic slaves of Rome, If you don't like your job, you can walk out tomorrow. Now, that might include some risk, but you could move on and find something else, and they couldn't. 
So there was a difference in Peter's day than to our American way of life. But there's still a lesson to be learned, and it's one of submission. So I ask you, submission to whom? Well, obviously, the text says, submit to your masters. That is obvious in the text. But less obvious, but equally essential, is our submission to God. And see it in three phrases. First in verse 18. Be subject to your masters with all respect. I'll classify this as an unfortunate translation. Because the word was just used in the previous verse, verse 17, as fear God. Fear God. So keep it fear in the next verse too. Because it would help us understand where the respect is coming from. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. It's not a respect that they warrant. It's not a respect that they deserve. It's the respect or the fear of God that causes us to submit ourselves to our human authorities. We've just been told to honor everyone, especially love the brotherhood, fear God and honor the emperor. We don't fear man. Peter's going to address that later in his letter. This fear is reserved only for God. It's the terror. It's the trembling before absolute authority. And if we're doing that in verse 17, if we're fearing God, then Peter has all authority to say, listen, servants, even when your master is unjust, subject yourself to that authority in the fear of God. But there's a second phrase that helps us see that ultimately we're looking through our masters and our earthly authorities to God himself. Because in verse 19, he says, this is a gracious thing when, mark these words, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. It it, it takes our vision off the imperfect parent, the imperfect boss, the imperfect church, the imperfect government, and it helps us realize, okay, there's the general understanding I should submit to authority, but ultimately my obedience and my submission is directed Godward. It just so happens that on the way to God is the authority that he has placed over me. We're mindful of God. We're thinking of what God wants, what God has said. We're thinking of the obedience God deserves. So if he's put that authority in my life, the principle is I submit. Third, there in verse 20. The question is asked, what credit is it if you sin and you're punished and you endure? That's what we should do. If we make a mistake, we should take our lumps and endure that, learn from it. The real challenge is when you do good and suffer for it. Will you endure that injustice? And if you do, the text said, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So we yield to authority out of fear for God. We yield to authority mindful of God. And now we yield to authority knowing that God 
looks favorably on our obedience to authority. It is a gracious thing. God sees that and it's pleasing to him. It's the sweet-smelling sacrifice that we offer to God. Our obedience, our worship of doing what he says. And so servants, for the Lord's sake, obey your masters. Even the bad ones. The word unjust in verse 18 is the word crooked. It's a very picturesque description of unrighteousness. So, you know, in our church language, we talk about unrighteousness and evil. We don't often use those words outside of church. So here's a real word picture. Even the boss that's crooked, even the authority that doesn't do everything right, straight would be righteous, crooked would be unrighteous. And so your obedience, remember, is God word. It happens to include the authority on its way, but even if that authority is imperfect, you submit to it because your eye is on God. That'll help us next week, and we'll probably rehearse that when we ask wives to submit to the authority and the role of the husband. We are not going to make next week about husbands are perfect and wives should listen to them. That's not what the text will say. What it will say is if God has ordained authority and roles, then let's look through that authority to God himself and yield ourselves to obedience. The command is to submit even to imperfect authority. But this command that comes in the specific context of slaves, call it employees, then grows into, number two, a principle for broad application. As if Peter wanted to include that admonition to servants, but really the rest of this paragraph is for everyone, whether you're a slave or not, whether you're an employee or not, whether you have a good boss or a bad boss, or you're your own boss. And I want you to see how this broadening takes place. It's there in verse 19, when in explanation, Peter writes, for this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows. He doesn't say, now, for this is a gracious thing, when a servant endures unjust suffering from his master. He's broadening the principle by just saying the one who endures suffering unjustly. We see that this is a broadening not only because he changes it from servant to anyone, but also because of the example he's going to cite of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ wasn't submitting to a master as a servant. If anything, it was to the governing authorities, which would have been our previous study. But he cites Jesus as the example because it's the example of this general principle for broad application. And the principle is our theme, endure unjust suffering. Is there a limit? 
Yes, eventually. Another topic of conversation. Needing other scriptures to help us. But right now, Peter's addressing stubborn people who don't like submission. So he's not addressing exceptions that everyone wants to talk about. He's addressing the general truth. God is pleased and looks favorably on our attitude of submission, even to unjust suffering. So that's the broad principle. I don't know how you will suffer unjustly this week. I don't think it will be in the extreme that we see across the sea as we can think of Bible-believing seminaries and churches and people being driven from their homes because of war in Ukraine. Certainly injustices taking place and certainly suffering. But frankly, we've probably already wearied of that news and because it is so hard to feel the weight of it personally, it may have been days since we've given that thought. That's not the suffering God has called us to. But there may be some slight injustice that you suffered this week. And amazingly, though it is slight compared to unjust war, you will have well up within you a desire to defend and to make it right because your spouse was out of line and you will not stand for it. It is an injustice. I simply must speak, right? My boss simply has to hear that what he is asking is unfair because he didn't, and, and, and it will well up within us. It's, it's that flesh that wars against the soul, in the previous paragraph. We do not like injustice and we are going to defend ourselves. But here's this broad principle coming down from the apostle to the church, specifically to the slaves, but now broadened out for everyone, endure unjust suffering. It may be felt in marriage, it may be felt in the workplace, might be felt when your neighbor bullies and gets his way for the fence line or plays his loud music or parties late into the night. It's an injustice. Talked to a neighbor the other day through the back fence. He was reminding me of his wife calling the police because of the barking dog and the clanking horseshoes after midnight next door. An injustice that just needed immediate intervention. That's not to be the spirit of God's people. We're exiles, we're foreigners. It's almost as if he's telling us, listen, there are some injustices that you don't need to waste your time on. You've got greater causes to live for than the injustice being remedied about the fence line or the workplace. As followers of Jesus, we must ready ourselves to endure unjust suffering. Again, not the trials and hardships of life that afflict all humanity, but the suffering that comes to those who are trying to live right, those who are the good citizens, those who are the good husbands and wives, those who are the good employees, the good neighbors, those who are followers of Jesus Christ, whose works are a testimony to a transformed life, and yet the world is still hating and opposing and even persecuting. It's to those whom Peter says, 
even when you do good and suffer unjustly, endure it. Well, that leads us really to the heart of Peter's teaching. How do we endure unjust suffering? We hear Peter's command, and if we were a first century, first century slave, we'd probably say, man, I don't know, Peter. You don't know what my master's done. Well, that's true. They were property. So while generally most of these people lived as families, if their kids got old enough and the master could make some money and sell off the teenagers, he wasn't concerned about your family. There could be gross injustices done. And now Peter is telling these servants, you've got to yield to that authority. And they would say, Peter, do you know what you're asking? Peter say, yes, because I remember the Passion Week. And I remember Jesus telling the Father, do you know what you're asking? Is there any way that this cup could pass from me? And the answer was, endure. And so we too endure injustice by looking unto Jesus who endured the cross and despised the shame. How do we endure unjust suffering when everything in us says, this is too hard, this isn't right, this isn't fair? Four answers to that fair question. How do we endure unjust suffering? Let me start with number two. Looking over the notes last night, I thought, number two should really be number one. It's first in the text, and it's logical in the argument. So number two, follow Christ's example. This is how you endure unjust suffering, looking unto Jesus. Verse 21, for to this you have been called, this being what we saw in the last verse, you do good and suffer for it with endurance. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ suffered for you. That's shorthand, probably not taught in schools anymore. Faster to just type on the keyboard than it is to take shorthand. Shorthand for the gospel. Christ suffered for you. That's the shortened form of Christ in his humiliation, condescending to take on human form, living a righteous life, dying an atoning death in our place, and then rising again for us. Christ suffered for you. It was in our creed this morning. Didn't have all the details, it just listed as suffering. This is how we are saved. Christ takes our sin. We receive his righteousness. As the old gospel song says, his death for my life. What a wondrous exchange. You see, we could never be good enough to earn a place in heaven. We, like the thief on the cross, had a whole record of crimes against Society and sin against God to warrant our death and eternal punishment. We aren't fit for heaven until we look in faith to Jesus. 
The thief said, I know I'm a sinner and I know he's not. That's that expression of repentance. And then he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, your King Jesus, I know it. That's the gospel. Christ suffered for us. You must see your sin as your ultimate ruin so that you can see Jesus as your ultimate rescuer. Then we are told that this saving suffering of Jesus was to us an example. An example. Interesting word. I had never seen this uh, in studying the languages. The word example is literally a writing under, which means it's, it's a pattern to be traced. And so the real meaning of example is you trace it. You, you do exactly what you saw. And so under your writing is another writing. So the, the writing under is, uh, I've seen this in, our, in our, our kids' handwriting books. There's the three bars, you know, the top line, bottom line, and a middle line for writing your letters. And when they first learn in kindergarten, the letters are dotted. And you, and you trace those dots to learn how to shape those letters. And you do it over and over again, and pretty soon we're good at it or we get worse at it as time goes on. But it's tracing those letters. That's the word example. The kindergarten shape of the letter was the example that is given to us. And here our text says Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example, and just to be clear, so that we might follow in his steps. Christ was our example when he suffered unjustly. Now the text unfolds that. How did he suffer unjustly yet endure? Well, here's what it looked like. And he borrows from Isaiah 53. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile. There was no angry outburst or lashing out. And he didn't threaten, the text says. There's the example. How do I respond to unjust suffering? I look at the example of Christ and realize I cannot sin in my response to injustice. Having seen his example, then we follow in his steps. It was 1896 when Charles Sheldon wrote a book entitled In His Steps, subtitled with the famous question, what is it? What would Jesus do? The book tells the story of a group of believers who were willing to ask and answer that question regardless of what it would cost them. Now, for whatever else the book flaws may include, this much is helpful. We would, do no, we would do well to know that following in the steps of Jesus Christ may very well mean suffering unjustly. That's not rocket science. It's exactly what the text tells us. Christ suffered unjustly at the hands of imperfect authorities, but he endured that without sin, 
leaving us an example that we would follow in his steps. Now that book and that question popularized and shortened down to WWJD is a valid question to ask in any situation, of course. But the original source of following in his steps is in obedience to God's authority when we are suffering unjustly. It's as though Peter is sure that every one of us are ready to trump any circumstance with this hyper-spirituality of, well, this is just an injustice, so I need to deal with it. And he says, in order for you to deal with injustice in some kind of radical way of intervention, you have to rise above the example of Jesus who was willing to suffer great injustice. Not only as an example, which it is, but for your salvation, which means this. If you're hasty in jumping to justice rather than enduring the suffering, you are trampling on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Christ suffered for us. That's first. In doing so, it became an example that we too would suffer injustice. We do not want to undermine the gospel of Christ suffering unjustly so that I could understand biblical justice and even be saved. How do I suffer Injustice, number one, by following the example of Christ. Now the other number one. How do I endure unjust suffering? Trust in the sovereignty of God. Notice in verse 23, after being told that Jesus never sinned in response to the injustice, we have this phrase that undermines all of those words committing no sin, no deceit, no reviling, no threatening. How is that possible? In contrast, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself. It's an exercise of faith. I look at the sovereign God over all things and I say, can I trust him to get it right? You see, the great struggle is, my view of right versus God's view of right. Oh, we're not saying God's wrong all the time. Sometimes we're getting close to that. But generally, we're just kind of thinking out loud. Boy, I think it would be best if this happened or this needs to be made right. And we're kind of wondering if God's going to catch up to our good idea. But we look at the example of Christ and we see him wrestle in Gethsemane and we know it's not a good idea. We know that this cup of suffering is horrible. But he entrusts himself continually to the one who judges rightly. It's in that continuing tense in the Greek. And so I think of Jesus being arrested in the garden, and I think he was entrusting himself to the one who would get it right. I think of him being stretched out 
in preparation for the scourging. And he's entrusting himself to the one who will judge rightly everything that's taking place. You picture him stumbling under the weight of the cross, not because he wasn't strong enough, but because by now his body is so wounded that it it can't even function. And he's entrusting himself. As they lay him on the ground to roll him onto a beam of a cross, he's entrusting himself to the one who knows this is unjust. But will do right in it all. It's that continual trusting. And some of us can't make it through a conversation without defending ourselves. I know it's hard when we're on the receiving end of injustice. But perhaps we need to hear this morning the lesson of not retaliating. And when we feel how hard that is, we come back to the text and we see the help for suffering unjustly is following Christ's example who continually entrusted himself to the one who judges rightly. And notice that phrase at the end of verse 23, him who judges justly. That stands in stark contrast to where our text began. Subject, or servants, be subject to your masters, not only the gentle ones, but also to the unjust. So that's where we started. Life's not fair. Authorities can be unjust. But Peter has brought us full circle, and he tells us that we can respond rightly to people who are unjust because I'm not trusting them to get it right. I'm trusting the one who is just to rightly measure what's going on and make it right. Your problem is you're, you're putting too much stock in the human authority that's imperfect to get it right. Your expectation was that kings and priests and, and pastors and government authorities and husbands and parents will be the ones that you can put your confidence in. Well, the wisdom of Proverbs has already told us it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in men. So stop looking at earthly authorities to satisfy your sense of justice and commit yourself continually to the one who will never get it wrong. Number three, live in resurrection power. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the plan of salvation, the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Why did he do that? The scriptures give many reasons, start ultimately with the glory of God, but we could start adding to that this web of reasons for why Christ died. Don't miss Peter's emphasis. He died carrying our sins, cursed on a tree, so that, there's our purpose, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This kind of life is possible, he says. You've been healed by Christ's suffering. 
So this is possible. You die to sin and live to righteousness. How is burying our sins and his body on the tree, the story of death, a principle of life? Because we know the rest of the story. We know that he died, was buried, and as we affirmed this morning, he rose again the third day. Resurrection power. And Romans 6 says that when we identify with Christ, we are risen with him to walk in newness of life. Our calling this week is to suffer maybe unjustly, but we will do so in resurrection power. The same power that brought Christ from the dead can help us to respond rightly to injustice without sin, without reviling, without threatening, without condemnation. Christ rose in power over sin and death so that we can live in power over sin and its death. You are able to choose what is right this week. You can follow in Christ's steps. How do we endure in justice? Finally, number four, we rest in Christ's care. Verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Straying like sheep is so familiar to us from Isaiah 53 that perhaps we don't associate ourselves with the word at the beginning of the text, unjust, crooked, evil, not gentle, but hateful. You see, Peter's point is, listen, you, you hate injustice and the evildoers, but you were once one of them. And so suffer injustice, endure it, by now recognizing you have been rescued from that kind of living and you are protected by the good shepherd. Christ is our shepherd and he is the overseer. That's our, our word for bishop. Because the leaders of the church were called under shepherds or bishops, those who would care for the flock, God's people. Peter is saying, here's how you endure injustice. You remember that you are exactly where your good shepherd wants you to be. Christ is our shepherd, Psalm 23 tells us. John 10, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So with Christ as our shepherd, we're told in Psalm 23, we lack nothing. You say, well, no, no, no. I'll tell you exactly what I'm lacking. I'm lacking justice. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. You see, you're assuming that the injustice of this world can rob you of your security granted you by the good shepherd. As if, as if we could erase the valley of the shadow of death, as if we could erase surrounded by enemies and only take Psalm 23, the feasting at the table. We want a prosperity gospel. Give us the overflowing cup and the bounty on the table, but not in the presence of my enemies, not walking the valley of the shadow of death. You see, the great hope that Peter holds out to us is that 
ultimate justice and peace and rest is not found in servants being freed from unjust masters or nations being freed from war-torn violence. The great hope is found in finding rest, regardless of what this life is doing, in a good shepherd who says he will never leave us or forsake us, whose goodness and mercy will hound us all the way to heaven. Rest in Christ's care. He's your shepherd and he's your overseer, your bishop. He supervises every detail of your lives. Do you think he doesn't know that injustice is part of your experience? Do you dare think that injustice has occurred outside of his ability or his knowledge, his providence? Nothing touches us but by his will. Every injustice is God's plan to shape us more and more into the image of Christ, to follow that example. Unless we think, but, but that's not right. He knows that. Read 2 Thessalonians 1. He will come again, and he will make right every injustice. It will be dealt with. He is worthy to open the seals and unleash his judgment on evildoers. And every injustice will be vindicated. This is how we endure the injustice of suffering even when doing good. Because of our allegiance to Jesus Christ, we may suffer unjustly as Jesus did for our salvation. If and when you do, heed Romans 12, which tells us, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But beloved... Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. By the power of Christ's resurrection, we can live to righteousness, a life of submission to authority, ultimately to the authority of God who raised Christ from the dead so that we can do as we've been told. Heavenly Father, help us in our struggle with these difficult commands we despise injustice, especially when it touches us, but Christ's righteous life and his atoning death and his victorious resurrection enable us to get it right. So by your grace, keep us from every wrongful retaliation this week. Guard the lips of every husband from speaking harshly to his wife. Guard the lips of every wife and any disrespectful word. 
Help every child and young person in this room under the authority of their parents to refuse to sin in their words or their attitudes, but yield to the authority of their parents as though they are yielding to you. We yield ourselves to your word this morning and to the care of our shepherd Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen.